uh, Deuteronomy chapter 12, this morning, verses 15 through 28. We are making our way <clears throat> through the fifth book of Moses, uh, section by section here at Trinity, because uh, we, we believe that uh, Christ bears witness to himself in all of Scripture, and because we believe that all of the Word of God is for all of the people of God. And so with that in mind, let's turn our attention this morning to Deuteronomy chapter 12, picking it up in verse 15. Let's hear the Word of the Lord. However, you may slaughter and eat meat within any of your towns as much as you desire according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. The unclean and the clean may eat of it as of the gazelle and as of the deer. Only you shall not eat the blood. You shall pour it out on the earth like water. You may not eat within your towns the tithe of your grain or of your wine or of your oil or the firstborn of your herd or of your flock or any of your vow offerings that you vow, or your freewill offerings, or the contribution that you present, but you shall eat them before the Lord your God in the place that the Lord your God will choose, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, and the Levite who is within your towns. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all that you undertake. Take care that you do not neglect the Levite as long as you live in the land. When the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he has promised you, and you say, I will eat meat because you crave meat, you may eat meat whenever you desire. If the place that the Lord your God will choose to put his name there is too far from you, then you may kill any of your herd or your flock which the Lord has given you, as I have commanded you, and you may eat within your towns whenever you desire. Just as the gazelle or the deer is eaten, so you may eat of it. The unclean and the clean alike may eat of it. Only be sure that you do not eat the blood, for the blood is the life. And you shall not eat the life with the flesh. You shall not eat it. You shall pour it out on the earth like water. You shall not eat it that all may go well with you and with your children after you when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. But the holy things that are due from you and your vow offerings you shall take, and you shall go to the place that the Lord will choose and offer your burnt offerings, the flesh and the blood on the altar of the Lord your God. The blood of your sacrifices shall be poured out on the altar of the Lord your God, but the flesh you may eat. Be careful to obey all these words that I command you, that it may go well with you and with your children after you forever, when you do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. Well, many of us, I'm sure, are familiar with that climatic moment at the end of Genesis chapter 1, where the Creator and king of, of all creation, looks upon the brand new world that he has made and declares it very good. It is a beautiful and breathtaking moment 
after the Lord has fashioned the heavens and the earth, this divine declaration of delight. Remember, on the first five days of creation, there's this repeating pattern of God as master craftsman fashioning the heavens and the earth by his word and spirit and then positively evaluating it at the end of each day, declaring it good, taking delight in it. And so you have the light of the heavens and the dry ground and the seas, the vegetation and the plants, the stars and the expanse, the birds in the air, the fish in the sea and the beasts of the field, all declared good. But I wonder, have you, have you ever noticed the climatic gift of creation, the, the gift that serves as the final segue from what God calls good to what God declares is very good? I wonder if you've ever noticed this climatic gift. There's this gift that comes between these two evaluations And I think it's often overlooked. It's true that human beings, men and women, are created on the sixth day as the crown of creation. But the creation of men and women is not the last thing that happens before God says, very good. The creation of mankind is penultimate to this final gift, this intensified pronouncement of goodness that follows something else happens to top it all off like a cherry on top the final and climatic gift is the gift of food and the pronouncement is in effect a divine bon appetit right then everything is called very good It's almost as if God was preparing the whole of creation to serve as a cosmic feast. Think about it. For six days, God prepares for this huge party that is going to take place on the the Sabbath day. But instead of just lighting up some candles and inviting guests uh, to a prepared table... Uh, The Lord lights up his party by putting the sun and the moon in their place and by stretching out green fields and creating fruit filled trees and bright rivers and streams like fountains. And then the host of this cosmic feast invites everything that has breath to feast on the Lord's blessing. And so why am I drawing attention? That's probably what you're wondering at this point. Why is Pastor Jared talking about Genesis 1? Aren't we in Deuteronomy chapter 12? Well, it's because here in Deuteronomy chapter 12, we find the same vision of delighting in God's good and generous provision. We find the same God and the same kind of hospitality at work as God invites his people to eat as much as they desire according to his blessing. And this is, this is an astonishing invitation when we think about it. Here in Deuteronomy chapter 12 are broad provisions for his people to feast in the land that he is leading them into, the land flowing with milk and honey, a good and spacious land. And we'll see... 
Even the specific prohibitions here, and even the most specific prohibition here, is intended to lead us to the even greater provision of God in Jesus Christ. That's what I want us to see today. My hope for us as we look at this passage is to see how generous, how how good, and how gracious the Lord is. And also to see that even in this very specific prohibition, we are being led to consider the even greater provision of God in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I think we can consider the passage before us today in two basic sections or two basic parts. Moses talks about the Lord's blessing and invitation to eat, and then he gives some prohibitions, and then he circles back once again and talks about uh, the Lord's provision and invitation, and then mentions some specific prohibitions again. So we'll think about it in, in those two parts, right? Uh, broad provisions, and then very specific prohibitions. Now, as we've seen throughout our study in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses was preparing God's people for a new situation. He was getting them ready to enter into the promised land. So for the last 40 years, they've been a nomadic people wandering around through the wilderness. But but now they were about to be a settled people spread throughout the broad and spacious land of Canaan. And this required, I wonder if you've ever realized this, This required modifications to the law. God is going to change his law on the basis of Israel's new situation within the promised land. And so certain laws had to be changed to suit their situation. And this is one example of that. In the first half of Deuteronomy 12, you remember from last time, Moses gave instructions about the proper place of worship being at this central sanctuary within the land of of Canaan, right? The place that God, the Lord God, would choose where he would put his name. And Moses explains that the Lord is going to choose this special location, which eventually, uh, we know, became uh, the city of Jerusalem, the temple within uh, Jerusalem. And following these instructions about the centralization of worship at the place where God would choose to put his name, which restricts the sacrificial worship of Israel to this one place, Moses then goes on in these verses to relax previous restrictions, which we read about in Leviticus chapter 17. Uh, These restrictions required the slaughter of animals, any animal eligible for sacrifice, any animal that could be used within the sacrificial system, had to be uh, sacrificed at the tent of meeting or at the tabernacle before the, 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 the tent of meeting with priestly involvement. And it didn't uh, pertain to, to game animals or wild animals, but any kind of lo- livestock used in sacrificial worship had to be offered at the tent of meeting. So we read in Leviticus 17 verses 3 and 4, If any one of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp, right? These were all animals that were used in the sacrificial system. 
or kills it outside the camp and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood and that man shall be cut off from among his people. Now that law would not have been too difficult for Israel to keep when they were essentially a traveling caravan. You remember that the tribes of Israel were stationed around the tent of meeting, so they all had reasonable access to the tabernacle as they made their way through the wilderness. But once Israel entered into the land of Canaan, settled in the various regions of the land, this restriction would have presented a new problem. It would have effectively canceled every backyard barbecue in Israel. It would have essentially made a lot of Israelites become vegetarians or limit their consumption of meat to wild game. But the creator and king of creation is far too generous for that. Accordingly, in his divine hospitality, through Moses, the Lord relaxes these previous restrictions and extends to his people broad freedom to enjoy as much meat as they desire in the land of promise. It is a wonderful act of divine generosity, as much meat as your heart desires. I don't know if you've made this connection, but I've got, to, I've got to confess that the timing of our coming to this passage today is uh, delicious, if I can put it that way. Without any planning on my part, really, I mean that without any foresight on my part, providentially, uh, the season of Lent begins this week, when a lot of people will be uh, not eating meat on certain days. So right when we're looking at a passage that's all about the Lord's generous invitation to eat meat when people are deprived of this good, this good gift, not by the law of God, but by the traditions of men. Uh, you know, the Reformed tradition uh, scrapped uh, all of the so-called holy days that came up during the medieval time period of the church. Uh, and even, even while, we, we can talk about this later, but even while the majority of churches within the Reformed tradition retained what they called the five evangelical feast days, right? Christmas, Good Friday, Easter, Ascension, and Pentecost. And, and those days were commended to uh, the, the church, not as holy days, but as helpful days to mark our time by the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. At the same time, while they retained what they called the five evangelical feast days, they insisted that no one is permitted to pass judgment on others in questions of food or drink. As Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to the things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed 
and appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now, to cover all my bases, let's be absolutely clear here. According to Scripture, fasting is a spiritual discipline that has great value and and is commended to believers primarily by way of example. So, um, for example, Jesus says in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, when you fast, he just, he just assumes that his followers will fast, and then he goes on to tell them how to do it the right way. All right, so that's, that's probably something we ought to give more thought to than we tend to do today. It's something I personally want to learn more about. So please don't misunderstand. Fasting can be a valuable spiritual discipline. But I think the reformers were right when they insisted that there is no specific time or season of the year according to the way the Bible marks our time. When Christians are required by God's law to avoid meat or frankly any other kind of food. And I think by the imposition of something like Lent, what you end up with is a distorted understanding of what repentance looks like. Uh, Instead of being a 40-day season, as Martin Luther says in his very first thesis of the 95 Thesis, when the Lord Jesus Christ calls us, he calls us to a life of repentance. This isn't something we're called to do on a one-off occasion or once every year during a certain period of time. It's something we are called to do every single day of our Christian lives, to walk daily in repentance. And I think one of the greatest sins, coming back to our text, one of the greatest sins that we continually need to repent of is the subtle sin of believing and acting as if God were far less generous and far less good than he in reality is. This passage reminds us that God isn't stingy. No good thing does he withhold from us in Christ. The Lord is not ungenerous. He is not close-fisted to you in Christ. In Christ, his hands are wide open to you, seeing most clearly in the outstretched arms of the Lord Jesus himself on the cross. And yet, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing us that the creator and sustainer of all things is, in fact, holding back from us. as holding out on us, that he's a stingy sovereign who keeps good things from us. Friends, I don't think that's an exaggeration at all to say it was the greatest trick of the devil that was ever pulled by convincing our first parents that God is ungenerous and withholding. You remember his first question. Did God really say that you uh, shall not eat from any tree from the garden? That's the first question the serpent asked. Just think about the context in which the serpent asked that ridiculous and outrageous and wicked question. 
There was no shortage of food in the garden. It was a place of overflowing abundance. Only a few verses earlier were told about how God blessed the man and the woman by giving them every plant and tree bearing fruit with just one exception. You see it? Broad provision. One very specific prohibition. But the serpent succeeded in planting the sneaking suspicion that God was somehow holding out on them. That God was keeping good from them. And that, that sneaking suspicion lurks within our hearts too, does it not? Think about where that sneaking suspicion that God is not good, that he's holding back from you. Think about how it creeps into your thinking. I dare say that all of us likely have some specific area in our lives where we have allowed this sneaking suspicion to take root and cause us to wonder, is God really good? Does God really, does God really love me? Did God just create me to get something out of me? Friends, that is diabolical logic. And it's precisely along those lines that the devil is at work in our lives. And just notice how this lie is exposed and, and made utterly ridiculous by the threefold repetition of the Lord's gracious invitation to eat as much as we desire. It's in verse 15, verse 20, and verse 21. This is amazing language. As much as you desire, go ahead and enjoy yourself according to the Lord's blessing. You see, the Lord's commandments are not narrowly restrictive or burdensome. It's, it's, it's a commandment to eat as much as we desire. That's my kind of commandment. <laughs> the Lord's commandments really are sweeter than the drippings of the honeycomb. That takes us to the second part of this passage, the specific prohibitions. I think the most beautiful part of our passage is not actually found in the broad provisions. The most beautiful part of this passage is found in the prohibitions. It's astounding. The most astounding part of this passage is the way that the specific prohibitions in our text ultimately lead us to the far greater provision of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a wonderful thing that happens when we read this law in the light of the gospel and we see, what we see is that even the prohibitions of God's law point to God's abundant provision in his son. And I think this ought to lead us to adoration and thanksgiving and worship. So notice that although the main emphasis in the second half of this chapter is on the Lord's generous invitation to his people to enjoy meat within the land of Canaan, verses 23 through 25 do strictly forbid and prohibit the consumption of the blood. We're going to look at some of the other laws mentioned pertaining to the tithe and the sharing of fellowship with the Levites as we go on in the book of Deuteronomy. 
But today I want to I want to really zero in on this specific prohibition against the consumption of blood. All right, Moses says, only be sure that you do not eat the blood, for the blood is the life. And you shall not eat the life with the flesh. You shall not eat it. You shall pour it out on the earth like water. You shall not eat it, that all may go well with you and with your children after you when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. See, the the importance of this prohibition is underscored by the fact that it's repeated four times in the span of three verses. You shall not eat, you shall not eat, you shall not eat, you shall not eat. Okay, so this is an emphatic point. I think it's also worth noticing that the, the origin of this rule predates the Mosaic law. It traces all the way back to the time of Noah, when after the flood, God allowed man to eat meat on the condition that he did not consume the blood. Genesis 9, verse 4. And then, according to Leviticus chapter 17, verse 10, Anyone who violated this prohibition against the consumption of blood would be cut off from among God's people. We already saw that when I read Leviticus 17 earlier. So this is both an emphatic point and a serious prohibition. It was an excommunicable offense among the Israelites during the Old Covenant. But the greatest significance of the commandment This is what I want us to think about for a few moments together. The greatest significance of the commandment against eating the blood lies in the utterly shocking and scandalous words of the Lord Jesus by which he transforms this this prohibition. I want us to see that... uh, uh, these, these prohibitions, I want, us, I want us to see them in the light of what Jesus says in John chapter 6. As Jesus declares, I want you to think about Leviticus 17, don't eat the blood. Deuteronomy 12, you shall not eat it, you shall not eat it, you shall not eat it, for the life is in the blood. And now hear Jesus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. You see, God never prohibits us from partaking of anything without providing something better. Do you hear that? God never prohibits us from partaking of anything without providing us with something better. He, he never withholds anything without giving even more than we could ask or imagine. You see, the good news, the good news of the gospel is, is not only that, that Jesus perfectly kept the, the, the law of God, which... Adam and Israel failed to keep. The good news of the gospel is is not just that Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath to the very last drop so that we wouldn't have to. All of that is gloriously true, but the good news is not only about the removal of sin. It is at its core, at its heart, about the feast of restored fellowship 
and the gift of eternal life. The gospel is not only about the problem of our sin, it is also positively about the the, the feast of restored fellowship and the joy and satisfaction that we receive in Christ that will endure forever. Are you thirsty? Are you hungry? Do you want a drink that will satisfy your soul? Do you want to feast upon a meal that will never leave you feeling hungry again? Then the scriptures invite you to come without money, to come and eat, to come and drink, to come and find satisfaction in the Lord Jesus Christ who is the life. And friends, this is why God created food in the first place. In order to help us to taste and see that he is good. As Robert Capone says in his beautiful book, The Supper of the Lamb, I quoted a portion of it in the email I sent out to you during the week. It's essentially a cookbook, but at the same time, it's a theological meditation upon food. And here's another quote from the book. He says, to be sure, food keeps us alive, but that is only its smallest and temporary work. Its eternal purpose is to furnish our sensibilities against the day when we shall sit down at the heavenly banquet and see how gracious the Lord is. Nourishment is necessary only for a while. What we shall need forever is taste. This is why God gave these broad provisions to eat meat, but not the blood. God generously provides nourishment for his people, while at the same time teaching them the theological truth that our life is not found in the consumption of food. That is not where true life is found. As Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, life is more than food. Yes, these things are given for our provision, but that's not where our life is found. It's not where our life consists. True life, abundant life, is found in fellowship with the flesh and blood of the living, risen Christ. And is this not the reality that is depicted and set forth every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper together? Remember the words of the Apostle Paul. Perhaps these questions will shine in entirely new light in light of what we're saying today. Where Paul asks, is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? A fellowship in his body is not the cup that we drink a fellowship or a koinonia in the blood of Christ. And so his body is true food. His his blood is true drink because as John wants us to understand in his gospel, Jesus is the life. But this passage also is meant to renew our appreciation for the goodness and the generosity of God in the simple daily gift of food. And I think sometimes we overlook this. I think sometimes we take it for granted. It might be revealed in the fact that we don't really feel the necessity to pray for our daily bread any longer. 
But this is why God has made bread and wine and, and other things to be sure in the first place. That's why he gave us milk and honey. Bread and wine and milk and honey and, and grain put God's goodness into our mouths. It adds flavor to his generosity and his goodness. It, it, it gives flavor to his provision. And when we enjoy God's goodness and and food, and drink together as the people of God, it is an anticipation and a reflection of the joyful fellowship with God and with one another that we have been redeemed for, that we've been saved for. And so as I've been saying for a little while now here at Trinity, perhaps we need to re-theologize our understanding of food and drink. Perhaps we need to rethink how we approach things like meat and bread and wine. There is more going on than just tantalizing our taste buds and filling our stomachs. You know, when you are invited to, to church lunch or to Sunday night fellowship like this evening, you're, you're being invited to, to taste and smell and see that the Lord is good. You are, you are being invited to feast on his provision, which is broad and generous. So yeah, you, you ought to consider coming out this evening for worship and fellowship over, I don't know what we'll have, meat and surely delicious cheese and hopefully some good wine and whatever else folks bring along. So come, come and taste and see that the Lord is good. And eat as much as you desire. There's a reason we don't ask for money for the, the food and the wine that we enjoy together. Because there's a theological reality that is being set forth among the people of God. It's God's provision. Come and feast. Come and remember that God is good. And remember while you're at it that Jesus loved food and wine. Seen in our mini-series on wine in Sunday school that he was described as the son of man who came eating and drinking. But the good news is not just that Jesus was happy to share a meal with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. And the good news is not only that Jesus is the Lord incarnate, the very same God who made such broad provisions so that his people might feast. And the good news is not only that Jesus Christ is the host of the Lord's Supper who meets us as we come in faith to feed upon him, that's not just the good news. The good news is, dear friends, he is the supper. He is the feast itself for his flesh and his blood are true food and true drink. I've reminded you a bunch of times already, but let me remind you again. Remember how Moses finishes this whole sermon series in the book of Deuteronomy as he's about to die what's the one thing that he wants to tell the people of God know this that the Lord is your life taste and see that the Lord is good come to know and experience that food and drink that truly satisfies by coming in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for 
Uh, your word, we thank you for your broad provisions and your generosity and goodness uh, evidenced in our lives day by day in how you take such care of us. We thank you for this specific prohibition which drives us to see your provision in the Lord Jesus Christ in the gift of his body and blood given on the cross in order that we might, by faith in him, have life in the Son. And I pray that each and every one of us here this morning would know that true and abundant life that the Lord Jesus came to give to his people. And it's in his name that we pray all of these things. Amen.